The following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Acts 2, 22-32 Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we don't do this very, I don't do this very often, but Worship team, thank you so much. That was money. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this day. We thank you for your people that are here wanting to hear from you. And I pray that you would speak to them through your word. Um, That I confess my own weakness, my own inability to keep things straight, say things clearly, Uh, my own sin that affects me, my own frailty that affects me. And so I pray that you would hide me behind your word today, that you would think to my mind, speak to my vocal cords, that it'd be all of you and none of me. I pray this would be for your good or for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, that scripture that we just had read this morning is the first ever Christian sermon. It was preached by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, roughly 50 days after Jesus' public condemnation and crucifixion that we talked so much about last week. So within 50 days, just over a month, Peter and the other apostles went from scared, despondent betrayers of Jesus on the night of his crucifixion to bold, audacious believers in a very short amount of time. So this transformation really cannot be stressed enough. Whatever happened in those 50 days changed the entire trajectory of the rest of their lives. Peter himself, who preached this sermon, will go on to be crucified upside down for his faith in Christ. What is to account for this radical transformation of Jesus' disciples? Well, we read it in the creed today. Jesus descended to the dead, and on the third day, 
he rose again. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Now, as I was speaking on last week, again, this isn't just an opinion. This is a historical fact. And I would love to spend the next 45 minutes giving you all the historical evidence for the resurrection. I geek out about that kind of stuff. But that's not what I'm going to do. If you want to talk about it, email me and we can get coffee or something. Or I could also suggest chapter 8 in William Lane Craig's book, Reasonable Faith on the Resurrection. What I want to do instead is to do a bit of a deep dive in what the Bible teaches about death, life after death, and resurrection. We're going to talk about, let me say it like this, we're going to talk about death, we're going to talk about life after death, and then we're going to talk about life after life after death. And this is kind of what makes Christianity so unique in regards to other world religions. Now, just to give you a heads up, I'm going to throw a lot of scripture at you this morning, okay? I kind of apologize, but I kind of don't, okay? Pretty soon we're going to be get through this, we'll get through Advent, or no, we're going to go in Book of Ruth, and then we're going to, what I like to do is when we study books of the Bible, is just take one verse and give me an hour to talk about one verse. That's what I like to do, and that's coming in the coming months. Today, it's a shotgun approach. You're going to get a lot, okay? It's a fire hydrant. Just stick your head in front whenever you can, okay? <laughs> it's going to happen this morning. So that's what we're talking about. We're going to talk about what the Bible teaches or what God says about death, life after death, and life after life after death or resurrection. I can already, already pick up where I'm going probably. First, let's talk about death. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about death. According to God, death is not a gentle passing into immortality. It's not a quiet return to the heart of the universe. It's not as the Hindus and Buddhists teach that it's just a natural cycle of death and rebirth that one should find comforting. The most common belief regarding death, I believe, in our society is death is simply going to a better place. It's almost universally declared after someone decent dies. No matter who they were, no matter what they believed, well, they're in a better place now. But over and against those views stands the Bible's view. And the Bible teaches us that death is at least four things, and none of them are natural. Death is a punishment, death is a place, death is a power, and death is a person. And if you don't know at least that much about death, you won't really understand all that Jesus did for us in his death, in his descent to the dead, and in his resurrection. So we're going to take a brief look at each one of those this morning. Let's go. <clears throat> First, death is a punishment. This one might be the easiest to recognize. If you've been around the church for a while, you should know this. Death was the consequence of Adam and Eve's betrayal of God. Romans 5 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, he's talking about Adam, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Say, sin is a consequence, or death is a consequence of sin. Then in Romans 6, 
The apostle says, the wages of sin is death. The prophet Ezekiel said it in the Old Testament, the soul that sins, it shall die. Why does death exist at all? It's not a natural cycle. No, it's an alien force. It's an alien reality. It's a, cur- it's a piece of the curse caused by sin. It's not natural. It's a curse. That one's the easy one. Second one, death is also a place. Now, this is going to require us some hard thinking. After Jesus died on the cross and his body was placed in the tomb and the stone was put in front, where was he? The creed answers, he descended to the dead. Now, sometimes in some versions of the creed, later versions, we say he descended to hell. But I don't believe that to be the most precise translations, and here's why. The Hebrew Old Testament word for the place of the dead is Sheol. The Greek New Testament, how the Greek New Testament translates that word in our text that we have this morning is they replace, they don't use Sheol, that's Hebrew. It's, this is Greek and it's Hades. You've heard of Hades? In both cases, this is the place the dead go to to await final judgment. Now, sometimes the word Hades gets translated as hell, but most of us, when we think of hell, we don't think the place of the dead. We think the place of suffering that Jesus talked about, the place of fire and torment where the worm doesn't die, right? Where people cry out for one drop of water. That's Jesus' words. Jesus taught on that. The problem is with that, Jesus used a different word when he was talking about the place of suffering. He used the word Gehenna. The Bible never says that Jesus descended into Gehenna. It says he descended into Hades, the place of the dead. Now, you could say Jesus has experienced hell because he experienced all the forces of hell on the cross. So that's not inaccurate to say that. But when we say Jesus descended, where did he go? He went to Hades. Jesus died and his spirit went to Hades like everyone else who dies. Now here's the we need to do some more work here because almost everyone that I know and everyone that I speak to and everyone in our culture, still, people still believe in an afterlife. They believe people die and then they go to some kind of spiritual better place. But this was not so in the days of Jesus. In fact, in the Old Testament, death and the place of the dead is never a better place to go. It's always seen as a shadowy, meaningless place where both the good and the bad go, but nothing good happens there. Nothing kind of of substance happens there in the grave. This kind of, I grew up in church. I never knew this. One time I was on mission. I was sharing my faith with a guy who was nominally Jewish. And he just said, hey man, I'm not really into this, all that afterlife stuff. I'm a Jew. And I'm thinking, well, you, but I'm a Christian, which is like a Jew 2.0. So you should, 
jump onto this thing because it's, and he's like, no, there is no heaven and hell in the, in the Old Testament. Maybe go back and I have to research and study and dig into it. And this is what he's, he was trying to, to say to me. I actually pull up Psalm 89, 48. This is what the psalmist says. What man can live and never see death? We're all gonna die. Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. So he's talking about that death is out there and it's this place, everybody's gonna go there and it's a place that we all go upon our death, this Sheol, also Hades. All men and women go to Sheol. Now listen, Psalm 6, 5. For in death, he's speaking to God here, for in death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? See, we might have, we have this idea that if, if you know, a person who's in faith, they die and they're going to immediately go into heaven. Well, that's not so in the Old Testament. At least that's not what was taught in the Old Testament or not what was believed in the Old Testament. The psalmist says, when a person dies, they die and they go to Sheol but we, it's kind of a dark place, the meaningless place. People aren't praising God there in Sheol. The psalmist says it's a place where, indiv- where the individual's life with God comes to an end. Psalm 88 goes into great detail about this. But here's the point. The Old Testament does not teach that people go to a better place spiritually when they die. That wasn't and isn't the hope of the Jewish people. Here is the hope of the Old Testament. Here is the hope of the Jewish people. Psalm 71. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the highest heavens. You have done great things, O God, who is like you. You have made me see many troubles and calamities. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. What is the psalmist hope here? That God will revive him and bring him up from Sheol, the place of the dead, to live again. Now listen, here's the reality. This was not hope in an afterlife. This was not hope in heaven. This was a hope in a literal, physical living again, literal, physical resurrection. And they believed it was going to happen at the end of time when the Messiah came, whoever was going to sit on the throne of David and set up his eternal kingdom. The Jews had no comforting spiritual notions about floating off to a better place when they died. Now listen, this is one of the reasons why the death and then then subsequent resurrection of Jesus required such a paradigm shift among the apostles. They knew death was a place no one came back from until the end. But with the coming of the Son of God, Jesus began teaching some things that were illuminating, maybe, or radically different from the Old Testament's view of Hades. 
in one of his most famous parables, and again, it was a parable, so I'm not sure if Jesus was talking about the current reality of it or if it was, this was going to be a result of what he was going to do on the cross and through his resurrection. But he gives this parable in Luke 16, 19 through 31, and he's talking about this rich man and this poor man, Lazarus, and the rich man dies and goes to Hades, and he's in torment there in Hades. But this poor man dies, and he's poor believer dies and he goes to Hades and yet he's in paradise there at Abraham's side in Hades and the rich man and in between the two is a great chasm and the rich man can see the poor man and Jesus is talking about the coming kingdom and, and such but so it seems like Jesus began to teach that Hades the place of the dead is a place that kind of it's a place of great torment where Gehenna could be. There's a chasm that you cannot cross over. So once you're dead, that's it. It's appointed man to die once and then comes the judgment. So there is no purgatory. There is no somehow I can cross over in the afterlife. Maybe I can do good deeds or do something to, to earn my way out or somebody can pray for me in this life now and I can get my way out. No, no, no. There's once, it's appointed once for a man to die. So Jesus kind of began teaching this I want to say it's a new teaching that the place of the dead had both a place of torment and a place of paradise. And again, that's what he said. Jesus said to the thief that he was crucified next to, the thief who believed, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. So death is also a place. Third, Death is a power. There is a kind of unholy trinity found in the letters of the Apostle Paul and specifically in the book of Romans. That unholy trinity is sin, death, and the law. These three are powers that are at work trying to enslave us. We are born slaves to sin. It isn't just something we do, it's something, us, something making us do some of the things that we do. We're enslaved to it. We can also be slaves to the law of God. We can be slaves to moralism. So we see the pull of sin and we, 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 we recognize the pull of sin that pulls us into bad things. And we say, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be bad. I want to be good. So now I'm going to be a slave to the law of God. How good can I be? How much effort can I put into being a better person, being kinder and gentler and more successful? And we can be enslaved and obsessed with our own performance and just constantly judging ourselves. How do we measure up? And um, How can I be a little bit better? How can I read a little bit more? How can I study a little bit more? How can I know? And this becomes, a, we're literally enslaved to the law. It becomes a slave master to us. Keeps us up at night with the things that we did wrong the day before. How we fell short. How we couldn't measure up how we failed our own standard. And really, being a slave to the law of God is no better than being a slave to sin. Lastly, we are also under the power of death. It's always there. 
breathing down our neck. This is why your parents said, don't, don't, don't jump off that. This is why they looked out and you were on the back of the garage. No, 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 get out, get out of that tree. This is why they very hesitantly hand you the keys on your 16th birthday. Death is always there. Now, we don't, we don't live like it is most of the time. We're still shocked when one of our, in high school, a teenager dies in a car accident or, or as this, this last week we heard of another successful pastor committing suicide. We fear it. We, we, we try to ignore it. We try to beat it, right? How much kale can I consume to stave off death one day longer? I'll tell you, it ain't worth it. <laughs> right? We're obsessed with exercise. We're obsessed with, you know, modern medicine. No, those things are good. Those things are all good. But death is a power that will one day catch us and bring us down, maybe kicking, clawing, and screaming in its grips. It's a power that's at work that's on us right now. It's, it's against us right now. Lastly, the Bible depicts death as a person. Revelation 6, 8, we studied the book of Revelation a few months back. You can go back and look at that if you want or listen to it on our website. Revelation 6, 8, and I looked and behold a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence, and with wild beasts. Death is the personification of, of Satan, the enemy of God, the devil. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, the last enemy that we have to be destroyed is death. That death is an enemy. It's not, again, it's not a natural occurrence. It's, it's an enemy. So when the creed says that Jesus descended to the dead, it has all of these concepts in mind. Jesus died as a punishment for sin. Not his own. He never committed any sin. Jesus went to Hades, the place where all the dead go. Jesus was pulled under by the power of death. And Jesus was destroyed by the enemy, death. But from our text today... If you want to turn there, it's Acts chapter 20, or Acts chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 22 and 23 and on. Peter, after all of this has happened, death has conquered Jesus. Peter stands up and says, preaches this sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So listen, G Peter is preaching to eyewitnesses of Jesus here, okay? 
Everybody said Jesus is a miracle worker, but here's what they said. He's doing these signs through the power of Satan. And Jesus is like, wait, what? That doesn't even make sense. How could Satan cast out Satan? Who's he fighting for? Doesn't even make sense. But that was his reputation, okay? He was a miracle worker. So Peter's speaking to eyewitnesses. Verse 23, this Jesus, look at this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? That means God had planned to kill Jesus before the garden. Before the garden took place. Before creation took place. This was created in the mind of God inside the Trinity and eternity passed. And it was going to take place. It wasn't an accident. But then, okay, then it's God's fault. Peter just bypasses that. Look at this. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. No, no, just because God predestined it doesn't mean that you didn't play a part in it and you're not still liable for the part that you played. 24, but here it is. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, what does that mean? It was not possible for him to be held by it. What well, means a lot of things? One, because Jesus was not a sinner himself. Sin is a pun- sin- death is a punishment for sin. So there was no punishment upon him for his own sins. So maybe that is why he uh, death couldn't hold him. But also. If you, let's just put our finger in Acts 2 and let's flip over to uh, John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Or not, I probably have it on the screen. I do, okay. <clears throat> Listen to this. This is Jesus talking. And this morning, one of the reasons I, I you know, if, if, if life is hard, life is difficult, Life presses on us. It presses on our, It causes us to doubt God. It causes us to doubt our faith. It causes us to doubt all things. And so one of the things that I love the most about worshiping with God's people, especially when there's some, some lyrics up here that just make Jesus look how Jesus is, like the king of everything, and, and there's, Jesus has no rival, those, that kind of thing just gets me pumped up and gets me ready to preach, right? This verse right here is one of those verses. It's one of those verses that I would have just been like, did you hear Jesus say that? (laughs) Look at what it is. Verse 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. What? I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to take it back up again. Jesus has the power of God to take up his life again. And on Sunday morning... That's exactly what he did. When they say he rose from the dead, Jesus descended to the place of the dead. And then on Sunday morning, he took his life back up again. He, his spirit 
left the place of the dead and went back to the place of the living and it reinvigorated his physical body. Now listen, this is different from resuscitation. I know you can go to Borders or Barnes and Noble or whatever and you can find a book about a little boy who maybe drowned and for like two minutes he saw the light, okay? I don't know if I believe any of those cases, all right? So I wouldn't really trust that too much, but I would trust the guy who was there for a day and a half. What's that guy doing? He's kicking the tires. He's walking around. He's checking things out for a day and a half. He doesn't just see a blinding light, right? Jesus is dead for a day and a half or whatever, two days, and then snaps his fingers and reinvigorates his physical body. Now listen, this is not resuscitation. Completely different. Nor is it what Jesus did with Lazarus when he called Lazarus out of the grave. Lazarus Brought, got brought back to life, basically resuscitated, and then Lazarus is going to die again. What Jesus does in resurrection is different than resuscitation. He doesn't just go back and he becomes like he was before. He's something totally new, something totally different. He's recreated. He has a new physical body, so much so that he, it still bears the marks of his humanity. He bears the scars in his side, but people don't quite recognize him. This is resurrection. Let's look at the pathway of Jesus. Life, death, life after death in, in Sheol or Hades, life after life after death, resurrection. That's what God promises to the... Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Gosh. All right. Look what 2 Timothy Chapter 1, 10 through 11 says, And which was now manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, look, who abolished death and brought life, and look, immortality, immortality. He can't die again. Jesus will never die again. Jesus is living right now at the right hand of the Father. Mm, through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and a teacher. Now, that's what Jesus did. He went to, he died, he went to Hades, and then he rose again in new life, in a physical body that's different. Glory, in a sense, so hard to understand this, but glorified-ish, not fully glorified till he got to the Father, but different enough. Different enough that he could walk through walls, which he did several times, but then he could sit on a stool and he could eat fish. So like, I'm not a ghost. I'm a physical being in front of you. That's what happened. Death, life after death in Hades. But that wasn't the end of it. Life after life after death, resurrection. Now, what does this mean for us? First, it means Jesus has tasted Death for us, right? Death is a punishment. If you've sinned, you deserve that punishment. How do you pay for your sin? You don't pay for your sin by doing a good deed. Oh, I did a bad deed, I'll do a good deed. No, 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 no. You pay for your sin by dying for it. Jesus, however, tasted death for us. He took our punishment in our place for our sins. Look at how Hebrews 2 verse 9 says it. But we see him, Jesus, 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Look, so that, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, his death is counted as your own. He tasted death for me. The punishment that I deserve because of my sins, Jesus took on himself. This is grace. This is a gift. I don't have to fear God's wrath anymore because Jesus tasted death for me. Okay, secondly, Jesus not only tasted death, Jesus also death is a place, Jesus also raided death so that we can have life everlasting. Now listen, death is scary. One of the most scary things about it is none of us have been there, right? It's the great unknown. But Jesus has. Jesus has walked in and walked out. And what I believe, I think Jesus walked in, renovated the place, and then walked out. Revelation 1, 17 through 18. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. See, Jesus, again, Jesus told a parable about you can't really enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless you first bind the strong man. I think Jesus bound the strong man, defeated Satan on the cross, and then on that Saturday morning, Jesus walked into his house, the place of the dead, and raided the place. I'll take those keys. When I think of Jesus in Hades on that Saturday between Good Friday and Easter, I think of him doing what he said he was doing. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You remember that? He's making a home for us. That we don't have to fear what's going to happen. We don't have to fear life after death. We don't have to fear Hades because Jesus has already cleaned house. When we die, if we are in Christ, we'll go to heaven to be with God until Jesus comes back and sets up his eternal kingdom. At that time, we get life after life after death. We get renewed bodies, whether he resurrects them out of the dust of the earth or ashes in the sea, he's going to put them back together and our spirits get a new body, a glorified body where we get to live on this renewed earth forever in peace with our God. Third, so Jesus tasted death, Jesus raided death, and Jesus mastered death. He mastered it so that we could be free. Let's look at Romans chapter 6. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us, look, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Stop. When you went under the baptismal waters or the water went over your head, you were being, as a Christian, you were being baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. 
Keep reading. We were buried. So another thing. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Jesus in a death like his through baptism, we shall certainly be united with Jesus in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer, look, be enslaved to sin. When Christ died for us, he died for us. He cut the power of sin. Our old sinful self that we were born into this world as natural born sinners, that little sinful self was put on the cross and crucified with Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith in that and when we got baptized, we're baptized into that death. Now keep reading. Verse seven. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So here... Here the analogy isn't just he paid your price, right? The analogy is slave is a chain on your ankle that keeps you chained to the old man, the old way of life, the sinful path. And through the death of Jesus Christ and through our baptism and participation in it, that power of sin, that chain of sin has been cut in the life of a Christian. Alex already said it today in our confession The power of sin is broken. Verse 8. What does this mean for us? Now, if we have died with Christ. Again, the analogy is, you're like, I don't know if I've died with Christ. Have I died with Christ? Were you baptized? Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe that he died and rose again? Okay. Then you died with Christ. Keep reading. We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer, look, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, listen, here's the words that that are important. Stop, I'm just going to pause. The reality is, oftentimes it doesn't feel like we've been set free from sin. It doesn't feel like we're dead with Christ and sin no longer has a hold on us and we're no longer slaves to sin. Oftentimes it doesn't feel like that. Paul knows that. He doesn't go, he doesn't say fake it. This is what he says. Look at verse 11. So you also must Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, this does not mean we will never sin again. This does not mean that we're not natural. We still are tempted and we're still pulled away. It means we are no longer enslaved to our sin because Jesus mastered death. We can live free. We can live free from our sin, from our enslavement to our desires. 
All right, lastly, Jesus tasted death, he raided death, he mastered death, and he also destroyed death. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. He put on flesh and blood. That through death, look, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, destroyed the power of Satan, destroyed it. And the, what's the devil's best weapon? His fear of death. It's the weight he pulls us down with. It's the weight he puts over us all the time. And Jesus destroyed it and delivers those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now listen, I don't know how much time you spend thinking about death. Obviously, we talked about last week, the older you get, the more you probably spend thinking about it. But the hope of the Christian is not that if you become a Christian, your life is going to necessarily be better now. The hope of the Christian is not that God will keep all of our loved ones safe all the time. I know many of you have, in a sense, tasted death because you've had to bury children. What is our hope? Our hope is not in a be our best life now. Our hope is not that, well, you know what? Just keep praying and God will make it better. That's not our, that's not our hope. Our hope is in life after death and life after life after death, that we will literally see them again if they were in Christ. That's our hope, that Jesus defeated death. And if he can defeat death, he can defeat any other enemy that we've got, right? We already saw in here his definite plan and his foreknowledge. You're not stopping the plan of God. God is in control and we are not. Jesus has already won the war over our greatest enemy. And the meal we eat, when the meal we eat this morning is a celebration of that fact. You know, Psalmist says that he'll prepare a meal before us, right? In front of our enemies. In a sense, I feel like that's what he does every, every Sunday morning. That we come together, all hell breaking loose outside, right? All hell breaking loose sometime. We we're not in control. But we come in here and we're reminded, oh yeah, Jesus beat death. And that should mean something. Jesus beat death. And I'm going to beat death one day too. Through life after death or if he comes through resurrection life. And every, every Sunday we come to this meal and we celebrate this fact. Jesus lived. Jesus 
died, Jesus descended to the dead, and Jesus rose again to give us new life. And that new life is physical resurrection, but it's also new spiritual life now. So listen, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never had that chain cut, that being slave to your sin, slave to your desires. You have a desire and you just get so obsessed with it. You just have to follow through with it. You've never had that chain cut. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And we've got a baptism coming up in a couple weeks. Get baptized. Be baptized into his death. Experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that we don't worship a good teacher. I thank you that we don't worship a good guy. I thank you that we worship a savior who conquered death who raided death, who defeated Satan, that that's who we worship. That's the Jesus we want to know. That's the Jesus we want to partake in. That's the Jesus we want to experience. So Jesus, the risen Savior, I pray that you would save people even now, that you would pick them and choose them and call them and give them faith, and you would change them from death to life, and you would cut the chains that hold them back right now. And you would breathe faith into your people through the power of your Holy Spirit. And as we come and partake your body, that it wouldn't just be a ritual. It wouldn't just be bread and wine or grape juice. That it, but it would be an experience of the power of God in us. Father, would you do that this morning? For your glory. For our good. For the good of our city this morning, Father. Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body that's broken for you. You took the cup and you said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of grace, the cup of your blood shed for our sins. We want to eat it and drink it in faith this morning, believing that you put death in his grave. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.